Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12, verses 1 through 12. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and they beat him. And they sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And they sent another, and they killed him. And so, with many others, some they beat, and some they killed. He still had one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill, and his inheritance will be ours. And they took him, and they killed him, and they threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? Will he come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others? Have you not read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And this was the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in his eyes. And they were seeking to arrest Jesus, but feared the people. For they perceived that he had told parables against them. So they left him and went away. Our Heavenly Father, we need you today. Father, uniquely we have felt the bitterness of living in a sinful world that is not the way it's supposed to be. Father, we know the... um, We have tasted the bitterness of death this week in the passing of Karen New. Father, in the prognosis of Virgil and and Linda, Lord, we taste the bitterness of cancer. Father, we look at our world and our government and our environment, and things are not the way they're supposed to be. As floods overwhelm the Gulf states and fire emblazes the West, This world is broken and scarred and maimed by sin. And we cry out in the words of John, Come quickly, Lord Jesus. It's very easy, we confess, to be overwhelmed by what is not right and what we do not have and what we long for. But Father, in the times when we know what we do not have and what we cannot control, we know that we, what we have been given. We have Christ. And we remind ourselves of the confidence that if we have Christ, we have all that we need. Though the rain comes down and the floods come up, the house on the rock stands firm. But Father, as we listen to the winds howl through the building this morning, we realize the fear that we have as the winds blow and the waves roll and the mountains are slid into the heart of the sea. In the face of danger, we do not fear because our God is a refuge and strength. We pray right now for Mr. New, for Melissa Brogdon, for Amy Denmark, Lord, that uh, as they grieve the passing of their mother, 
They grieve through tears of joy, knowing that their mother trusted in Christ and was united to Christ. And she will rise when you call her name at the resurrection because she trusted in Christ. The perfect goodness that she has been given by Christ, that she can stand before the throne of God above because she belongs to Jesus. And on the cross, her sin was paid for not in part, but in whole. The wrath of God, as we sung this morning, was satisfied for Karen New because she trusted in who Christ is and what he had done. And as Paul says, we grieve, but we do not grieve like those who have no hope, for Karen will rise. Father, we lift up Virgil and we lift up Linda as they struggle with uh, two forms of, of cancer. And though it is heavy and it's difficult and the process is daunting and fearful, they both have an unmovable confidence in Christ that he walks with them and he will heal them, whether it be on this side of eternity or for all eternity because of who Christ is and what he has done. The son who has come, though rejected by his own, he laid down his life. He was defeated that the plan of redemption may be uh, declare victory. Father, encourage us, embolden us, strengthen us, give us joy, give us the desire to go and tell. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the good news of great joy for all people. This morning we also lift up Christy Anderson as she prepares to go to Hawaii for the discipleship training school to be able to be prepared to be able to share the gospel with the nations. Lord, because in the midst of a broken and upside-down world, there is one that can save. His name is Jesus. And I pray that you would empower and embolden Christy to proclaim the name above all names, whence where men only where through which men can be saved, Jesus Christ. And in his name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. We continue in the, uh, in the book of Mark, Mark uh, chapter 12. Uh, we're in the latter half of the book. The book is broken up into thirds. You have the first third, which was in Galilee. Jesus is uh, walking and teaching and um, doing miracles. And the middle half is the connection between going from Galilee to getting to Jerusalem. And Jesus is moving and teaching and, and, and who he is is being revealed to the people. And now in the latter five verses or chapters of the book of Mark, uh, Jesus is accomplishing the work that he came. As Mark chapter 10 says, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And these last five stories are telling the, uh, the narrative of the final week of Jesus here on, on his earthly life. And it's not a, um, a week of peace and, and prosperity and calm. It's a week of controversy and conflict and betrayal. 
And Jesus knows the path he is about to walk, and his focus never turns away from uh, Calvary. And during this week, he doesn't shy away from controversy. He doesn't shy away from voicing his condemnation on the rulers, the religious rulers, the Sanhedrin, who have hijacked the things of God for their own purposes and to suit their own means, and Jesus condemns them. And we see in the latter half of chapter 11 where Jesus outright condemns them, but now he calls to the people and he begins to tell a parable. He tells a story, and you might notice that the last time we've heard the parables of Jesus is all the way back in Mark chapter 4. So Mark drops this story in here, this parable what Jesus is teaching, and there's a reason for doing that. I quote often um, Andrew Peterson, who quoted somebody else, who he's not really sure who it was, but they said, if you want somebody to know the truth, tell them. If you want somebody to love the truth, tell them a story. And so what Jesus did here is he tells them a story about a landowner because he wants this story to captivate his audience. He wants to grab their attention. He wants this story to put the flesh and bones on the the flesh, on the skeletons, for them to be able to know and feel what's going on in their midst that they're not even probably aware of, that it would lead them to action. It would lead them to feel differently. It would lead them to think differently. And so he wants to teach them this, and I made my big idea, that was my big, if you had to make sure you got that, that was quick. Uh, Let's go back. There we go. God's marvelous plan of salvation, God's marvelous plan of salvation was accomplished by the defeat of his beloved son. God's marvelous plan of salvation was accomplished by the defeat of his beloved son. Now, how I want to do this, I don't have points. I want to tell the story, and I have three um, ways of application, three lessons, three morals, if you will, that we'll learn from this story. Um, But also, I want you to walk away that God's marvelous plan of salvation was accomplished by the defeat of his beloved son. Notice in verse 1, Jesus begins to speak to them in parables. Now, a parable is simply a story that is drawn from an everyday scenario of life. And it is, uh, its goal is to teach one specific truth, or like we, when we uh, read through Aesop's fables and things, the, what's the moral of the story? Uh, what, you know, the... Um, the, tor- the tortoise and the hare, what's the, the, the crow in the pitcher, what's the moral of the story? And a parable, as Jesus teaching, is he's teaching a moral. But one thing that's unique about the parables is they're almost riddles, and riddles that are hidden from outsiders, but are revealed to insiders. And Mark is an insider, and he's writing now in his gospel, and he wants us to be able to come to the knowledge, to be able to understand what's happening. So what he does is he, uh, Jesus takes this common situation, the pro- practice of tenant farming, and what would happen, especially in the Galilean region where the soil was, was fertile, is wealthy landowners would come in and buy large tracts of land, and they would parcel it out and have poor tenant farmers who would work their land. 
And this, what they would do in exchange for being able to live and to uh, reap the harvest, they would take anywhere from a quarter of the harvest to a half of the harvest each year, and their servant would come and collect those things. And it would work out well uh, for some um, farmers, depending on the landowner, but it was fraught with greed and it was fraught with corruption. Uh, There were often many riots and rebellions and wealthy, greedy landowners who would oppress their tenants. And it was really a place of greed and corruption. But Jesus is telling this story, and I would imagine the people that are around him are thinking, aha, I know the villain of this story already. It's got to be the landowner because of the, of the schlep down the road who is abusing the tenants. I know what's going to happen. And so Jesus begins to tell this story to give them an understanding and a twist that they don't expect. Notice as he continues in, in verse, beginning of verse 1, a man planted a vineyard, and he put a fence around it, and dug a pit for a wine press, and built a tower, and he leased it to the tenants, and he went into another country. And when the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from, from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. As you read through, what may immediately strike you and, uh, is the um, intentionality and the love of the landowner as he invests in the vineyard. He didn't just roll out the land, sign the lease, and say, hey, I'll be back in six months to collect my wheat. He took the time, he put a fence around this property, this fence to be able to protect it from scavenger little poaching animals that would come in and be able to delineate it from the other farmers. And they dug a a pit for a wine press. He equipped it with what it was necessary to be able to accomplish its goal. And a vineyard would be able to produce uh, rich, delicious wine. And so he uh, dug a pit for a wine press. And he built a tower. And the tower would have been a dual functionality, would be able to see the, the, uh, um, survey the horizon, any potential threats, any animals in the vineyard, but also a place of storage where they could put that in protection. Uh, and for the infrastructure of a vineyard was crucial, but probably more essential was um, faithful caretaking of the vineyard season after season after season because neglect would doom a vineyard. The soil needed to stay well watered. The trellises needed to stay maintained because if they began to rot and decay, the vines would fall and would be ruined and wouldn't be able to produce the the proper crop. And the crop must be harvested in a timely manner or the fruit would die on the vine. Therefore, when the landowner, and it says the landowner leased it to the tenants and went into another country, he wasn't trying to just get a paycheck and to build his bottom line. He wanted to take care of his vineyard, for he loved the vineyard. Jesus' listeners would immediately recognize the language of verses 1 and verse 2 from Isaiah chapter 5 that Scott read. It's almost verbatim because you can see in chapter 2, as you read the whole story in verse 2, it doesn't have the, the 
fence and the winepress doesn't have anything to do with the rest of the story. And this is immediately connecting in their mind this story, this love song of Isaiah, where the landowner cultivated this, this vineyard and he poured his heart into the vineyard. And rather than uh, producing sweet fruit that was uh, 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 capable of producing fine, delicious wine, it produced sour, bitter grapes. And so the listeners are beginning to hear, and, and uh, I have the quote here, let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning the vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard, and on a very fertile hill he dug it and cleared it of stones, and he planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it, and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded only wild, bitter grapes. So as Jesus begins to tell this parable, the people are thinking and expecting one moral or one outcome of the story, and all of a sudden they're beginning to think, this may not be going the way I expected it. And that's probably Jesus being the teacher he did a wonderful, good thing. But just as the vineyard in Isaiah brought forth bitter grapes, the vineyard in Jesus' parable reaps a harvest of bitter trouble for the landowner, not the sweet fruit of the vine. And it continues, it says, They took him and beat him, the servant, and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent them to another servant, and they struck him in the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and they killed him. And so it was with many others. Some they beat and some they killed. The tenants should have recognized the benevolence of their landowner and, and paid him back with a bountiful harvest. Yet instead, they paid him back with treason, and they paid him back with contempt, and they paid him back with dishonor. When the first harvest was collected, the servant was dispatched to get the owner's rightful portion, but he was beaten and he was sent away empty-handed. They stole the first harvest. And then the next servant was beaten and treated with contempt. And the third servant murdered. Slowly, with each new servant they sent, they, their, their um, behavior and their actions be more, became more criminal and more aggressive and more uh, bitter in hatred, more hostility and arrogance and treacherous. Subsequent servants were beaten and others were killed. This was a perpetual problem with the wicked tenants who had committed treason and were beginning to steal not only the produce of the, of the owner's vineyard, but they were attempting to steal the vineyard himself. Yet in all of this, the landowner was patient, and he was long-suffering. Some may call him a fool. And they would have said, when you had sent that first servant and he was beaten, I would have evicted them then. Give them what they deserve. But the landowner was patient, and he was long-suffering. Foolishly long-suffering in the eyes of the world. But notice verse 6. He had still one other, a beloved son. And I think as we read that, we're like, no, don't send the son. Don't send the son. Finally, he sent them to them saying, they will respect my son. The long-suffering landowner does not crush the tenants for the rebellion and the betrayal. He doesn't give them what they deserve. Instead, he sends his beloved son, his only son, his son that he loves, that he has poured his life and his affection into. 
Why? Because he, he says a servant is only relaying a message. And he tries to appeal to the consciousnesses of the tenant, and he says, surely they will recognize the authority of my son. He's my representative. He has my authority. He has a claim to the fathers, and he's coming to receive what the father is due. Surely they will listen to the beloved son on behalf of the landowner. But unfortunately, we know how the story goes in verse 7 and 8. I can just see Allah, the prodigal son, the servants are looking in the distance and they see maybe a caravan or somebody walking down the lane and they see it and they begin to recognize, aha, this is the heir. And they devise a plan that says, come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. They took him and they killed him and they threw him out in the vineyard. They discarded his body like trash and left it to be carnaged by the scavengers. To not bury a body in the ancient world was the greatest dishonor that could happen. And the shame that they, as they treated the servants, they now treated the heir. As we look through this thing, and Jesus' listeners would have not, this is not the story they were expecting, because the actions of the tenant are appalling. But we see the, the foolish, long-suffering kindness of the, of the landowner is ignored and it's trampled, and the villainous tenants are no longer satisfied just to steal the harvest. Now they're hatching a plan to steal the property of the, of the landowner. They devise the scheme to murder the heir and ensuring that they will keep the lamb for themselves. A foolish and short-sighted plan. Because they think because the owner is not there, they can't see the owner, they can't hear his voice, they can't touch his hands, they think because they can't see him that he's not there, that he's gone. The silence of the owner leads to the foolishness of the, of the tenants. But though they kill the heir, he may be dead. The father lives, and the father will be heard. And Jesus ends the story there, but then he turns to his audience, who at this point were probably um, appalled and shocked and this is, wasn't the story they were expecting. It's like when I read a book this week and it had a twist ending and I just sort of stopped for a moment like that's not what I was expecting. And it took me off guard and I went back and rethought of the whole story and I said that makes perfect sense. And that's what Jesus wants us, wants us to do this morning is to... Um, get in our faces and make us appalled to realize what's going and realize the owner of the vineyard will be heard. And notice verse 9, it says, what will the owner of the vineyard do? And Jesus doesn't even wait for the answer. He says, he will come and he will destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. The landowner is not going to stand idly by as his son is murdered and his body is left to be pillaged by scavengers. 
The tenants will receive the just penalty for their treason, their betrayal, and their treachery, and their place of the, in the vineyard, they will be cast out, and others will be found to maintain the vineyard. They may have murdered the son, but the father lives, and his purposes for the vineyard will not and cannot be thwarted. <clears throat> this parable that was spoken as a, uh, as a riddle is now revealed to those who are near or connected to Jesus. And the significance of the parable is not lost on his disciples because even for an outsider that was listening, it's painfully obvious because we see, at the, uh, I think in verse 12, the, the Sanhedrin who is listening either through emissaries that have been sent or they're eavesdropping or they're there, they know full well who the, the characters are in this story. They know that God is the landowner. They realize that the tenants, the wicked, uh, treasonous, treacherous tenants are, uh, are the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leaders, not Israel itself, but the Jewish leaders who have perverted and hijacked the ways of God for their own carnal needs and their own carnal desires. And the beloved son that is sent by the father is Jesus himself. Yet the teachers, this is more, they feel that this is a stinging indictment on them, but they're not worried about Jesus because they have a plan. Though they fear the ramifications of the audience and the crowd, they will find a way to kill Jesus. It's Tuesday, but Friday's coming. And in 72 hours, they figure out how to take care of their problem, and they'll nail him to a tree, and they'll use the Romans to do it. But as we listen to the story, there are three assurances that we have. Three assurances of God's marvelous, redemptive pur purposes in Christ. Three lessons that we can learn this morning. One, God's purposes remain steadfast. God's purposes remain steadfast. We have to remember that this is are not um, isolated stories that Jesus is telling us, giving us little morals like Aesop to be able to teach us how to live good lives. Jesus is a part of a story. It's a culminating story that's working towards an end that started in Genesis 1 and that's moving to Revelation chapter 21. And there's a promise that Jesus gives, or the Lord gives Abraham all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. He says, through your offspring, and as Christians we recognize that the offspring of Abraham is Christ, through your offspring all the nations of the world will be blessed. Jesus' purposes of des and design for salvation is not a narrow, exclusive club that serves only a select few, but it is a vineyard that is designed to feed the nations with the fruit of God's righteousness and His truth and His life. Isaiah 56. Isaiah, it should be coming up here. There it is. Isaiah 56, what Jesus quoted earlier and in Mark chapter 11, it says, the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, 
to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath without profaning it, who hold fast to my covenants, I will bring them to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifice will be accepted on my altar. And notice the quote that Jesus gives them earlier in Mark 11. My house will be called a house of prayer for the nations. Now where was Jesus when he said that, when he quoted that? He's standing with the silhouette of the temple behind him. My house will be a house of of prayer for the nations. But now all they have is an obstacle. They have a roadblock that is red tape and bureaucracy and the perversion of this temple system that is keeping the nations away from the glory of God. And God's steadfast plan of redemption will not stand for it. He will overcome that. And thus he denounces. He doesn't cleanse the temple. He denounces it and says, this is not what I have designed. This is not my purpose for the generations. The vineyard where the nations come to meet God has now become a safe house for the perverse for the wicked who have confiscated the things of God for greedy, selfish, and immoral gain. And as Jesus quotes Jeremiah, I believe it is, you have made it a den of robbers. When we look on this world, and we don't have to look at a temple in the first century, we can look at many churches or places of worship who attempt to speak in the name of God. But all they are is a religious front that uses many of the words of Scripture and of Jesus. It is an affront to be able to get them what they really want. Like the temple that had been perverted from the worship of the one true God, now the church has been hijacked by many, by charlatans, by hucksters, those who are peddling the word of God for profit, to be able to get what they really want, to be able to expand their brand, to be able to get power and influence, to be able to get political power. Let's use the church to get, give them, throw them a bone so I can get what I really want. The wicked will not have the final word. God's plan of redemption is steadfast. Even the most powerful kingdoms will rise and fall, but the purposes of God remain and they stand. Though the temple was being used to empower the wicked, to oppress the poor, and exploit the weak and vulnerable, God's purpose of of redemption remained. Though the church today is used as a means to accomplish personal fame and secure political power and justify pride and self-love, God's purpose of redemption remains steadfast. As the prophet Habakkuk declared the words of God, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. We look out and we are brokenhearted because things are not the way they're supposed to be. The world is a mess, and that doesn't surprise us. 
from the White House to Wall Street. Things are a mess. But that's the world. But then we look to the pews and to the houses of worship, and we don't see much difference. We can remain steadfast that though the vineyard has been taken over by uh, sinful, wicked tenants, God's purposes remain. The landowner is not silent. His purposes will continue and will be accomplished. There's a warning in this parable that says, any person or group that obstructs or hijacks the fruitfulness of God's purposes of making his glory known so that their purposes and their glory and their power and their agenda will be forced and foremost are actually the evil tenants who have hijacked the vineyard of God. Though we see that, it overwhelms us. And honestly, it makes me angry often. Some of you, Scott, sometimes gets my vents uh, when I get upset and I'm angry because I see people that are being taken advantage of and they're lied to and they're told him, this is what you need. Last night, Andrew left the TV on and I walked out and there was a a prosperity preacher on the TV this morning at 6 a.m. And he was telling the people what they wanted to hear uh, and about deliverance and about power and enabling, name it and claim it. And then he says, to do that, you need to sow your seed and send me money. And it made me angry. God's purposes remain steadfast. Do not be overwhelmed. Do not be downcast. God's purposes remain steadfast. The second thing we see is this. God's patience is long-suffering. The tenants in this parable live self-centered, cutthroat lives with no awareness of the landowner, paid no account of his, uh, the agreement or his coming judgment. They thought they could do whatever they wanted. They could exploit whoever they could, and they could live for whatever they wanted. They lived as lord of their little world, and they shook their fists at the landowner and did whatever it took to maintain power over their little stretch of vine. They ignored every servant's plea. Even the plea of the beloved son could not move them from from their um, rebellion. But with every servant they beat and killed... And every plea and warning that they ignored, it lulled them into a deeper and deeper false sense of security. Each day, each act of rebellion and defiance only secured their final destination and their final destruction. Ocean Park, don't be deceived. When we see the world, and it is, as uh, Luther says, in this world with devil's fills should threaten to undo us. When we look around and we say things are not the way they're supposed to be, they're a steamy pile of hot mess. Don't be deceived when you see a world filled with injustice and oppression and murder. God knows the condition of the vineyard, and he will not be cheated, he will not be mocked, and he will not be duped. 
the silence of heaven does not mean that the vineyard has been abdicated to the rulers of this world. He will return and he will destroy those who remain in their rebellion and their treachery against his righteous rule and his truth. That's the bad news. But the good news is his patience is long-suffering. The world would have said at that last, at that first um, servant that was beat, go in there and wipe them out and burn everything to the ground. But the kindness of our God leads us to repentance. Romans chapter 2, verse 4, do you not presume on the riches of his kindness and his forbearance and his patience? Servant after servant was beaten and killed, and that still the Father sent His Son. God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Your rebellion and your pride and the rebellion and pride of the most hardened sinners who re- refuses to bow the knee. That does not have to be the final word. Each day that the long-suffering patience of the Lord grants you life is one more time to denounce your allegiance to yourself, your ways, and your kingdom, and live for His kingdom purposes. To repent, not just of bad things you do, but the selfishness that you are. I will no longer live for myself, but I will live for my King who loves me and sought me and bought me with his love. Not only will God's purpose is not be, uh, God's purpose remains steadfast, God's patience, uh, um, God's patience is long-suffering, God's rejected cornerstone will rise. The tenants rejected and killed and left the son's body outside the city. His offer of peace was adamantly refused. The response of the tenants to the son was the decisive factor in their fate, as it is for us. Notice verse 10, Jesus begins to explain to the crowd, have you not read in scripture, quotes out of Psalm 122, the stone that the builders rejected, this beloved son that was killed and left outside the city to rot. As Jesus died on a tree outside the gates of Jerusalem. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. He's accomplishing his purposes, though how could this possibly be? And it's marvelous in our eyes. The rejection of Christ on the cross that Friday was not the end of God's redemptive plan where God had to go back to the drawing board, but that was the plan. It was the means by which God would accomplish his plan. And God's purposes were not being thwarted by man's rejection, but the very means by which God accomplished his salvation. The very people that crucified the Son were the ones that Jesus was dying to redeem. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? For the son would be killed and he would be thrown out the city, but that son would rise again. 
Jesus, the rejected, murdered son, was the cornerstone of a new temple, of a new vineyard. The stone that was rejected by the builders who were building their own kingdoms and it was tossed aside is now the most important stone in the kingdom, in the temple of Jesus, or the temple of the Father. The cornerstone that holds the walls in true and steadfast. And it is marvelous. The death of the Son outside the city would secure the plan of redemption for His people by His death and by His resurrection. It was a victory that was marvelous in the eyes of the Lord. The question for you this morning, is it marvelous in your eyes? When you look at Jesus... Do you see a threat to your kingdom and your ways and your desires and your freedom? Jesus is a threat to what I really want. If I follow Jesus, I have to do what he says. As he said, take up your cross and follow me. Deny yourself and follow me. As Bonhoeffer says, those Christ calls to himself, he calls them, come and die. Die to your own sovereignty, die to your own kingdom, and live for the kingdom of Christ. When you see Jesus, do you see a tragic, wasted life? The Father should have never sent the Son. That's exactly what I knew would happen. Ocean Park, the question becomes, is Jesus, is his plan of redemption, is the, the defeat of the Son marvelous in your eyes or do you see uh, you see this uh, christ manifesting his glory through the nations building a new people of god through a people that forgive as they have been forgiven who uh, render to god the things that are god who love the lord with all his heart and soul and mind and love their neighbor as themselves in a short this new temple this is not based on geography and ethnicity. Um, it's now based on, I belong to Jesus. A worldwide temple that goes and stretches to every tribe and tongue and nation. A temple that is not built by stones, but a temple that is built by the life and together where Jesus Christ is made manifest and the glory and the righteousness of God like a, um, a incense is brought, the aroma of the knowledge of the gospel throughout all the world. This new temple of Christ-likeness. This week has been difficult for me. And I very much felt the brokenness of sin in the vineyard. On Tuesday morning, I um, went to visit Karen. And when I arrived, uh, I realized that she had been brought into the presence of the Lord. And I stood, uh, went into her bedroom uh, with Melissa and Amy and Mr. New, and I stood by her body that had grown very frail and weak. But I knew that body would rise again. It would be strong. And it would be no longer encumbered by the, the effects and the weight of sin. She will rise when Jesus calls her name. And her soul is with Jesus 
awaiting the resurrection when all of those who have been buried with Christ in the day that we are laid in the ground, we will arise if we're united to Christ by faith, be united to the defeat of the Son. But we know, Karen, and the names of all that we have buried in faith will rise again because Jesus the Son His body did not stay outside of that city, but he rose again. I sat in the living room of Linda and Bob Burkhart, and they told her the prognosis of cancer and the struggle, and Linda says, I'm not fear dying, but I fear dying. The process is what uh, scares me, but the end is that I will be with Jesus. In In receiving the news that Uh, Virgil's tumor was not good news, glioblastoma. I watched as our nation spirals deeper and deeper into hostility and hatred and division. I see a strain of the virus, the separation, the division of the church, the bitterness of sin. I feel my own weakness, my own limitations, and my own frustrations. And on... um, Friday, I, I've been teaching Andrew's speech class for his co-op, and one of the, one of the things that we had to do was we, uh, I had them read a children's book and uh, learn how to read out loud and enunciate and things like that. And so last two weeks, we've been reading through the Jesus storybook, and the students are reading to the, the kindergartners, five- and six-year-olds. And I had just received a phone call from... Uh, a friend of mine who is struggling with the very fact that uh, one of his dear friends uh, is dying and he has two more weeks or three more weeks because his kidneys are, have shut down. And he says, why is the father taking him away from me? And I explained, I said, I want you to feel the bitterness right now of sin. Because we know the sweetness that we all want a place to belong. And friendship is good and it is true. And we realize that we have within us a longing to belong, to have a place. And that's why the new heaven and new earth is so sweet because we have a place at the table, at this feast, as we sing. We will feast in the house of Zion. This promise that we have, we'll have a place that will belong. We'll have a place in our Father's house. We'll be loved and be loved. And things will be as we know they're supposed to be. And as I listened to the kids read through the Jesus storybook, uh, we read the the passion narrative and ultimately the end where Jesus took our punishment and Jesus gives us his righteousness. And at the last, uh, one of the kids, Carl, was reading, I was thinking of this final story in Revelation chapter 21. When the owner comes back, and he has brought all the tenants who have been united to, by faith in the Son, and they work and cultivate the vineyard, and they reap the harvest of the righteousness of God. And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. The chaos of this world that the sea symbolizes had been calmed. And I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of the heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throat, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. 
and God himself will be with them as their God, as it was in the garden. It will now be in eternity. No sin that separates us, no rebellion. There will be wholeness and there will be shalom, completeness, peace. And God himself will reach out to Karen New and to Virgil and to Linda. And he will wipe away tears from their eyes. And death will be no more. Neither will be mourning for the tears and the bitterness of this world that we have tasted in the vineyard as the tenants run amok and dishonor the goodness and the vision of our Lord. Death will be no more, neither shall be mourning and crying or pain, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne, behold, I am making all things new. Though we look now and all we see is the son that was murdered and thrown outside the city, though we see the tenants and their wickedness overrunning and destroying the vineyard, the, ten, the God will return. And he said to me, it is done. Write these words down. These words are trustworthy and it's true. It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, to the thirsty. For those who long and hunger and thirst for righteousness, I will give them the spring of water of life without payment. Brothers and sisters, as we look at the vineyard, those of us who love the sun realize the sun has risen and he is returning, and sin will be no more. For those of you who don't know Christ and are living for yourself in rebellion against the God of the vineyard, the patience of God, is the kindness of God is leading you to salvation. Repent of living for yourself and turn to the Father through Christ the Son and repent of your sin and follow Christ. For God's marvelous plan of salvation was accomplished by the defeat of his beloved Son. Shall we pray? Gracious Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning and we thank you. We thank you for the promise of the gospel that says, though this world is not the way it's supposed to be, Christ is returning, Christ is coming, and he will wipe away the tears that we cry, the pain that we feel, Cancer will be no more. And our bodies will be restored and renewed in the life of Christ for eternity. And all things will be new. And we will rejoice. In Christ's precious and holy name we pray. Amen.